from WERU's Boat Talk Guys. All for only $20 per person with children under 12 free. Act now, if it's regular business hours, Chris is sitting by to take your reservation at 469-6600. Thanks again to Bar Harbor Cruises for donating the Sea Princess to help support WERU. And visit the WERU.org website and the Boat Talk Facebook page for more details. Support for Talk of the Towns comes from the Maine Community Foundation, partnering with donors and nonprofits statewide to strengthen Maine communities through grants and scholarships on the web at maincf.org. The time is 10 o'clock, and you are listening to Community Radio, WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and on the web at WERU.org. A voice of many voices. Stay tuned. It's time for Talk of the Towns with Ron Beard. Good morning and welcome to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. We try to go beyond the headlines to make sense of the issues facing Maine communities, to share what works, to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns is produced with support from Cooperative Extension, the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine with offices statewide. Cooperative Extension puts knowledge to work with the people of Maine and like WERU, whose mission is to be a voice of many voices operates out of a sense that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, our experience, our concerns, our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio, in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our friends, our neighbors, and colleagues. I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour and talk of the towns. I want to start with a quote from Aldo Leopold um, this morning. Um, back in, in uh, the 1940s, he wrote a San County Almanac, and one of his introductory uh, sentences goes, We abuse land because we regard it as a commodity belonging to us. When we see land as a community to which we belong, we may begin to use it with love and respect. So our program this morning is, is uh, to help people think about how they use the land and maybe some resources that can help them um, use it um, with love and respect. I, I don't know if that we, we thought we were going to talk about love and respect, but that's really what it's all about. And I'm glad to have some guests in the studio who can help us with that topic. Um, Megan Fasciello, who's with the Hancock County Soil and Water Conservation District, and uh, Chris Brewer is with Penobscot County Soil and Water District. Welcome to both of you. Good Thank morning. You. Good morning. Right. And later on, we'll hear from uh, Paul Birdsall, who is um, with Horsepower Farm in Penobscot. He's the um, chair or his supervisor. How do you? The chair of the, the district board. Hancock of the district County. board. Right. And uh, Ted Kaufman will join us um, around 10:30. He's the executive director of Maine Audubon, and he'll be telling us about a project in which uh, Maine Audubon and, and many other partners are helping people think about culverts. Um, well, first, let's start with each of you giving a little bit of uh, background on yourselves. Um, how did you get into this work? Uh, Chris, you started um, doing um, some accounting-type work and then slipped over into, into your work now. That's right. Um, I went to college, and uh, I, I was an accounting major, and I worked um, in banking doing mortgages for USDA and in their one of their programs for a couple of years, and then I 
um, saw an opportunity to move over to uh, the conservation district, which is not you, you know federal government; it's local government. But it was an opportunity to try something new, and I've been there 16 years now. Um, really love the job. It's great. it's great to work with people and and help them make wise decisions on on land use. Great. So, Megan, yes. what was your path? How did you get into this work? I graduated from the University of Maine in Orono as a journalism major and a natural resources minor. And when I graduated college went and moved to New Hampshire, where I worked as an AmeriCorps member for a conservation district down there. And that's where I really learned to love teaching people about the environment and how to take care of it, how it benefits us, um, and and working with people to, to make changes on their properties to, to, benefit, to benefit the environment and them. Mm. Well, I'd like to start the conversation. We'll, we'll talk more about um, the, um, the how you do this kind of work. But I'd like to start with some concepts. Um, recently, probably in the last 10 or 15 years, people have been talking more about something called environmental services. And um, I think of it as, as the fact that the environment, um, the natural world, had some systems kind of built in that serve us in lots of ways. Can you help us understand how the environment helps us? And we, you know, we talk about um, going out to a restaurant and eating local food. That's certainly an environmental service. Yeah, sure it is. Um, basically, everything that we need to survive comes from our environment. Um, so it's important for us to have clean air, um, soil that will produce us food, um, clean water. Um, these things are very important to us um, in our lives. And if we don't take care of the land, then it can't take care of us. So. So. Um, when you're working with um, uh, landowners, um, how do you help them see um, some of those benefits? We try to help them understand that, you know, uh, minimal things that you do at home can make an impact um, to the environment. And if you just stop and think, do should I do this or that, um, it can lead to um, just keeping things safer and cleaner in the environment. So, mm. for example, if you actually read the uh, directions on a fertilizer bag um, and realize you don't put the whole bag on your lawn, that's keeping that phosphorus out of the water system, which will keep the stormwater clean and, and the lakes won't turn green and yucky. And so, <laughs> yeah. so we certainly see the, the effects of, of pollution. Um, can you think of other ways that um, um, trees help us, for instance? Um, how, do, how do trees help us? So trees do a lot of different things for us. Um, their roots help to hold soil in place. They help to filter out any sort of pesticides, chemicals, anything like that that's coming through the soil. And also the canopy itself helps. If you think about when it rains and it, you just had a big rainstorm and you go underneath that tree, well, later on still raindrops are falling down. So it really helps to break up the impact of all that rain falling down and helps slowly infiltrate that into the ground. Mm. So not only does it do all those things, but it gives a shade. Um, so on a hot day, we can sit underneath it and enjoy a little bit of a cooler place to be provides mm -hmm. animals homes um, and so it, and everything in our environment does that it provides so many different things that benefits animals and ourselves and mm -hmm. it's really important as people to take care of our environment I mean a healthy environment equals healthy people so that goes back to that Leopold quote that um, if we see ourselves as some um, somehow owning the land <laughs> that we can do with it what we want that's different than kind of being a part of the community. And you're, uh, Megan, you're saying, well, we're part of the community with trees, and trees serve us, and we ought to be paying attention to that. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's not a. It's not. It's more of a give and take. It's mm -hmm. not really us controlling mm -hmm. our environment, mm -hmm. or it shouldn't be. Right. Yep. Yep. So when we when um, a lot of your work um, has to do with um, preventing problems that that cause. Um, uh, water quality issues. So what are some of the the, the, the lists of things that we 
um, ought to be uh, aware of? Um, a lot of what we see is soil erosion is probably our biggest concern here in the state of Maine. Um, we see a lot of it from um, properly ma- um, improperly maintained camp roads, gravel roads, um, sometimes agriculture, but not so much. Most of our farmers do a very good job. They work with us, um, and they've uh, you know they implement all kinds of conservation measures to t- make sure that the soil stays there. That's an important resource for them. So they want to do the best they can. So it's a lot of what we see is usually, like I said, camp roads and shoreline erosion, more driveways. Than else. Yes, yeah. Yeah, so it's all it's more the small homeowner, the homeowner kind of things that you you don't know necessarily notice that something's happening and then all of a sudden your shoreline's gone or or there's, you know, huge ruts in your driveway. Well, you got to think about where did that soil go? It's always going somewhere and yeah. it's usually into the water system. So And and what does that do to the water system? What do what do tiny particles of soil do to the water system? Every soil molecule carries with it a packet of phosphorus. Um, mm-hmm. As phosphorus goes into the water system, it can contribute to algal, algal blooms. Um, basically, if a water body has more than 15 parts per billion of algae uh, phosphorus, it can produce algae. Okay. Um, so that's an important number for us to consider when we're talking about lakes ecosystems. So, so it isn't just that the water looks bad, it starts to do something that we don't really want. Exactly. Right. And if you see erosion going on, you can follow that soil, but what you can't see is phosphorus, but you know that it's attached to that mm. soil. So that's why we look at erosion issues a lot, mm-hmm. that if soil is moving, so is phosphorus. Mm-hmm. And um, so you mentioned um, uh, small property owners that are using their land, um, mentioned farmers. How about forest practices? Forestry is also um, really an important factor to look at, but we find that most of our forestry landowners um, do a good job um, because they know that, you know, if you harvest in the winter, it's better because you're not going to disturb as much soil. Um, properly installing access roads is important as well. So, But yes, as you, as you reduce the canopy, as we were talking about before, you, you do change the land's ecosystem. So mm. um, there's a lot of what we see um, when you take a step back out of the forestry area is when you get into the urban areas, as you change the land, there is less opportunity for the water to naturally infiltrate into the soil. Then we're looking at more concentrated flows carrying more and more things into the water. Mm. So So you're um, in Penobscot County, uh, Chris, you're working more with that urban situation. That's right, exactly. Yes, yes. Half of our population in Penobscot County lives near Bangor. Um, So we have a considerable urban area that we need to consider. So part of our outreach in addition to the soil erosion is that, you know, we need to have folks in the urban area consider that, you know, phosphorus from fertilizer, pesticides that they use on their properties, these kind of things can wash off into the stormwater as well and mm-hmm. get into the Penobscot River and cause problems with for the habitat there. Mm-hmm. So... And Megan, how is that different from some of the issues that you face in Hancock County? So in Hancock County, it's a lot of shoreline erosion, whether it's along the oceans or along lakes. Mm-hmm. I do a lot of technical assistance for folks looking at why is your shoreline eroding and now how do we mitigate that? How do we stop that mm-hmm. from happening? Mm-hmm. And whether if that's you know trying to do fabric and rock to stabilize that or if it's planting. And in most most cases we try to plant up the shoreline to help stabilize that use mother nature mm-hmm. um, on our side mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so you're again you're using the the plants root systems to prevent um, s- um, soil from kind of getting loose yes <laughs> right. exactly right. Yep. and there's a filtering um, a- aspect to it so that if you're if your lawn um, is next to the lake and fertilizers are washing off if you haven't planted some kind of a buffer 
that goes right into the exactly and grass itself regular lawn grass does not make a good buffer its roots are not deep enough to actually filter anything and so we really encourage people to plant shrubs trees along the shoreline and they don't have to block your view of your beautiful lake or of the ocean you can install buffers so that they do their job and allow beautiful uh, views for you and also kind of give you a little privacy too so people aren't exactly staring at you on your property as well so we're going to talk um, with Paul Burnsall in a a few minutes but um, tell us a little bit how you're structured how you kind of tied in you mentioned yourselves as a as a county type operation how does that relate to other aspects of the USDA the Department of Agriculture um, well, we're we're part we're partnered with the United States Department of Agriculture um, in most states, and here in Maine especially, um, we work in closely with the USDA Natural Resources Conservation Service. In many parts of the state, we are co-located, which means that we are also working together in the same office, mm-hmm. um, which is really a valuable asset. But in some situations, that it's not necessarily anymore the case as you know the government has to downsize but um, they are still a very valuable partner for the offices that 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 doesn't happen and um, we're part of a statewide association Um, so there are 16 conservation districts that doesn't necessarily mean that there's one in every county Um, there's three in Aroostook County and then we have a couple counties that have been put together Mm -hmm. Um, so that you know if anyone's interested in you know and they're outside of our service areas there's a website for to find your local district as well. Mm-hmm. Um, that's mainswcds.org, and you can check that out. Um, and basically, we're part of state government. Um, mm-hmm. We're a subunit of the Department of Agriculture, Conservation, and Forestry, um, and each county office is, is a subunit of them. Mm-hmm. So. so where does your funding come from? Um, several different places. Um, We get some from the state of Maine, and then most of it we actually have to fundraise. Mm. Um, Comes from donations or grants programs that we (laughs) apply for. I get money in Hancock County from the Hancock County Commissioners, but we're not seen as part of the county government. We're seen as a third party, and so every year we go and and ask for funding um, and show how we are benefiting Mm. the people. so and that's the same in Penobscot County too. Okay. They give us a, a very good stipend as well. Um, yeah. Some some places in the state that's not quite the case. Right. But so um, no no, your salaries aren't federal. These that's are, right. These are state no. or local f- exactly. dollars. Exactly. And yes. you are partnered with a federal agency, Natural Resources Conservation. Yes. Exactly. The districts yes. are not for profits. Right. Yes. Right. Yep. Right. Well, let's go now to um, uh, Megan's uh, uh, chair of, his, of the local uh, soil and water conservation district, um, Paul Birdsaw. Welcome to Talk of the Towns, Paul. No, he's not there. We'll try to get him back. We'll try to get him back. Paul Birdsall from Horsepower Farm in, in uh, Penobscot. Um, so th- this n- notion of this partnership, um, what's the nature of the partnership with um, Natural Resources Conservation S- Service? It's evolved over time. Initially, it was the conservation districts were the entity that brought the USDA to the local people. Um, and now that's changed quite a bit. They deal mostly with the agricultural aspect of what we do as a partnership. And Megan and I and most other conservation districts now focus on the other things that can't be done through the NRCS technical side. So we deal a lot with the homeowners and, okay. and camp owners and gravel road people. And, and, towns. and towns. We work a lot with town Great. municipalities. Yeah. So they're more targeted to toward agriculture. Um, yes, because they're resources. tied to farm bill. Right. Yep. So. And logging, the forestry operations. Okay. Yep. Now I think we have Paul Birdsall on the line. Welcome, Paul. 
Uh, glad to be here. Tom, you're at Horsepower Farm. Describe your farm for listeners who, who aren't familiar with it. Okay, we're diversified uh, market vegetable farm. We also raise field crops, uh, like we have over an acre of potatoes, and uh, uh, we cut our own hay. We do a lot of our work with draft horses, and uh, we ha- have done a lot of work in the woods in the wintertime, largely with horses, and uh, have been a long-time uh, uh, cooperators with the Soil and Water Conservation District. In fact, I've been on the district board for uh, 35 years. <laughs> that's, a, that's a record, I think, Paul. <laughs> and and you're located in the best soil in Hancock County, I understand. Yeah, well, these, these are ridge tops here, glacial till soil, Dixfield fine sandy loam, and it, it really is pretty darn good. That's great. <laughs> so, um, uh, Megan, when we talked about putting this show together, said that you have um, uh, kind of memories of why... Um, soil conservation, um, preventing soil erosion, um, might be important. Um, Your memory goes back to to, to brown snow. Tell us about that. Yes, when I was a a, a kid in in, uh, western, in Berkshires of western Massachusetts, and um, uh, we actually had, uh, sometime around 1937, I think, we had uh, some snow that was dirty, also, I was, well, I was born in 27, so by 37, I was 10 years old. Hmm. And uh, my folks were pretty conscious of what was going on, and they made sure we knew, too. Uh, so I was fully aware of what the issue was, and uh, I, a couple of years later, whenever The Grapes of Wrath came out uh, by John Steinbeck, I read it, and, you know, it made a deep impression. Hmm. So... Uh, yeah, I've I've always carried that with me, but it it really wasn't until we got to the farm and open for business and uh, just forty years ago this spring that uh, uh, you know conservation got to be more in my mind mm. and uh, including farmland conservation. <laughs> right. So um, and maybe I can uh, well uh, give you a little background on the. Uh, how uh, Soil and Water Districts and uh, NRCS uh, came to be. Yes. Okay. Well, um, I was surprised to learn, and the Encyclopedia Britannica for came out about 1950, I guess, and I have one. And what a resource. Uh, anyway, uh, they state that uh, uh, erosion was a serious uh, problem in colonial times. Um Part of it was a lot of the settlers along the coast, the 13 colonies, came from northern Europe or the British Isles. Rainfall over there is more, they may have more of it or a lot of it, but it's well distributed and, and moderate. Mm. And rainfall events in this country tend to be more extreme. The other thing is a habit of mind, which had got established pretty earlier, was that, uh, oh, you know, if there's a problem with the soil, why there's more to the West. You mm-hmm. just move on. Yes. Let me le- read you a quote from the 1938 Yearbook of Ag- Agriculture that was passed on to me from by my grandfather, and I'll have you react to that. And this is, this is from... Um, 
an article called General Aspects of Soil Erosion Problems. Um, It says, moving over these naturally vulnerable lands, the march of agricultural occupation across the United States left widespread soil erosion in its wake. The pioneering axe and plow rapidly upset the interplay of natural forces that had formed and preserved rich soils through the ages of undisturbed development. The same tide that rolled the frontier forward from the Atlantic rolled back nature's stabilizing mantle of trees and grasses and bared virgin soil to wind and rain. So somebody had been studying things, Paul, and it sounds like you were reading from the same kind of sources. Right. Well, I I could say that, uh, for instance, uh, George Washington was a farmer. He was extremely concerned with soil erosion and worked on it, you know, all his life. Uh, Patrick Henry is quoted as saying, a true patriot is the man who fills gullies. Hmm. Uh, Jefferson's son-in-law, Thomas Jefferson, uh, uh, inventing, uh, uh, developed the predecessor or related uh, related uh, the the uh, beginnings of contour farming, yes, pl- yes. contour plowing, and Jefferson was high on that. So, uh, but to skip the 19th century, where of course there were plenty of problems, but we don't have much time. <laughs> and um, by the time of the First World War, of course, uh, there was a tremendous demand for grain during the war, and we probably. Uh, proud of, plowed up and brought into production more land than we should have, land that was uh, more sensitive to erosion. Uh, after the war, prices dropped, but um, the response of the farmer was to plant more to make up for right. the lack of income. Yeah. And um, so, and there was an agricultural depression during the 1920s, but um, uh, production kept increasing because farmers were trying to make up the shortfall. And you, had, um, and you had railroad and transportation systems that were then able to get um, products from um, distant uh, places to their the, the cities. Yeah, right. The, the, the uh, uh, whole uh, foundation of commodity farming was there. Mm. Um, th- there was uh, little interest in this subject except that uh, Hugh Bennett, uh, a very important figure, and he was a soil surveyor in the Bureau of Soils, in the Department of Interior, and he kept uh, sounding the alarm all during the 1920s. Apparently, he uh, got was listened to because in 1929, there were 10 soil conservation experiment stations established uh, throughout perhaps the more vulnerable areas in the country uh, to measure soil erosion. Uh, in 1933, um, the Soil Erosion Service was established, and Bennett was its head, and that was still cited in the Department of the Interior, hmm. and that was the first erosion control uh, uh, measure passed by any important nation in the world, and, and so we may be remiss in our in our soil erosion, but we were. Uh, ahead of the game in terms of doing anything about it. Um, 1935 triggered, by this time you had the Dust Bowl, and um, they were having Dust Bowls from the early 30s. The drought started 32, I think, 31 or 32, 
went on all the way till 1940, I think. The worst dust storm, uh, one of the worst, was so severe it uh, it passed. It was noticeable in Chicago and Detroit and and uh, uh, New York and Washington and ships off saw offshore noticed it. This got people excited, so the Soil Conservation Act was established. It, it passed that it established the Soil Conservation Service in the Department of Agriculture. Now, that Soil Conservation Service is still going. It's just now called NRCS, Natural Resources Conservation Service. Um, and the initial efforts at uh, conservation were uh, using uh, available manpower resources, the Civilian Conservation Corps, which took young men off the streets and put them to work. And uh, they planted a heck of a lot of trees to begin with. That was the beginning of it. But there was one severe lack. You didn't have any uh, cooperative uh, 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 relationship between farmers and the government. Uh -huh. Now, the real thing is, here you've got SCS, and you say, well, what more do we need, and why can't they send out their representatives to the farmers? Well, the farmers wouldn't have uh, listened to them. What they had to do was establish an organization, a peer group yep. organization, yep. the Soil Conservation District, in which farmers serve on. Of course, I'm a farmer, and we have two or three farmers on our, on our board. Hmm. The next step was 1937. Franklin D. Roosevelt wrote each state, told them they needed legislation to enable farmer co cooperation, and proposed a standard state soil conservation district law. And um, right away, uh, states passed these acts and started establishing conservation districts. The districts were uh, government subdivisions of the state. Mm -hmm. And their project, their plan was to uh, work on projects of erosion control. So that, those were the key steps which uh, established cooperation between uh, SCS and the districts. And, 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 uh, and SCS right away put technicians into each district office, which is a practice that still continues today. And um, uh, so, so, Paul, as a farmer, um, and um, you've got, um, you probably meet with other farmers or other farmers know you, um, the idea between the, the districts was that farmers would teach other farmers in some way. Is that yes, right? Yes, and yeah. the point is that it would make it acceptable. Right. I mean, I'm farming away here, and I'm in, a, I'm in a, a southeast, western Colorado, and, and uh, I say, well, What's all this new conservation stuff? It doesn't make much sense to me. But then it's, my neighbor's just gotten on the uh, soil and water board. Well, he's a good farmer. I respect him. I'll, uh, I'll cooperate. Great. So the, the technicians were there to go out, but they had to be made acceptable mm -hmm. by the peer group situation. And, and, and as you've seen um, young farmers come into Hancock County in, in, the, in the 40 years that you've um, been farming, um, are they as curious about some of these topics as, as you older folks are? Oh, I think they are. I think uh, uh, because this movement is uh, back to the land is fueled by uh, people who are extremely conscious 
not just of raising good locally produced vegetables, but by doing it uh, in an environmentally sense, uh, sensitive way. The other thing is that those of us who are here uh, certainly uh, encourage anybody who comes in to uh, participate, and there are great advantages in becoming a cooperator and obtaining the services of a NRCS uh, a technician who knows the quality of your soil and uh, if I could just list some of the things that uh, we've done here briefly if you would yeah cover, cover cropping crop rotations to some extent strip cropping that's interrupting uh, let's say a vegetable field on a slope by planting a strip of vegetables and then having a strip of grass uh-huh. or some cover crop. Uh, trees, uh, planting trees, um, and water diversion ditches, and also drainage. And as a matter of fact, we've also got uh, facilities for, two facilities for storing uh, manure and compost. Okay. So, so these, these are um, practices that um, kind of you've learned about and gotten the, that technical assistance from NRCS. Yes, and, then, and many of them were cost-shared, too. Okay, great, great. Well, Paul, thank, thanks so much for being with us here on Talk of the Towns. It's not the first time, and we're glad to hear your voice again. Well, thanks so much. This is a you know, subject that's dear to my heart, and I'm so excited by this uh, coverage that I found in the encyclopedia, and I've got a an idea it might be a good idea to pro- approach somebody and uh reproduce it okay. well and, and 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 just so you know the um the author of that piece that i read was yes. none other than hugh bennett okay okay <laughs> and and actually there's a bibliography at the end of this article great in the botanica mm-hmm. great well, well thanks. thanks so much for the opportunity okay thanks paul okay paul birdsall from horsepower farm um he's also the chair of the Hancock County Soil and Water Conservation District. Um, so these practices that Paul has mentioned, so that would be typical for farmers. Uh, yes. There's probably other practices that you work with with camp associations or road associations and homeowners and, and, and municipalities. Mm-hmm. A similar kind of thing where you're trying to demonstrate good techniques. Is that right, Chris? That's right. It is, yes. Um, basically, when we, when we have like water quality grants programs, we do what are called demonstration sites. The idea is that we work with a landowner and we install perhaps a vegetated buffer or some shoreline um, riprap, which is fabric and rock to hold the shoreline in. And then other people can look at those practices and see them and then understand that it's really not rocket science that we're trying to teach. It's basic. Um, it's really actually quite easy. Mm. Um, but sometimes you do get into a situation where you do need technical assistance and that's where Megan or I come in. Or if it's something where you need an engineer, we can help, you know, get you to that step. So mm. it's, you know, but most of the time it's really easy. So <laughs> Great. Well, I'll remind listeners that they're tuned to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. Um, we're talking about protecting water quality as you work with your land. And our guests in the studio are Megan Fasciolo of the Hancock County Soil and Water Conservation District and Chris Brewer of the Penobscot County um, Group. And uh, joining us by phone right now is Ted Kaufman. Ted is the Executive Director of Maine Audubon. Welcome again to Talk of the Towns, Ted. Ted? 
we seem to have lost Ted. We've got an inexperienced engineer in the studio. He hasn't uh, quite got the hang of things, so um, we'll try to get him back. When he is, we'll bring him on, and he'll be talking a little bit about um, the... Ted, Ted, are you there? Yes, I am. Great. Welcome to Talk of the Towns. Uh, well, thank you. I'm glad to be with you guys. And uh, Maine Audubon. We think of Maine Audubon as uh, thinking about birds, but you're talking um, today, you're going to talk a little bit about fish. Is that right? Well, a little bit about, particularly about brook trout. And, and why, why, Audubon. Why, why would Maine Audubon care about brook <laughs> trout? Well, Maine Audubon is, is keenly interested in wildlife and wildlife habitat generally. Um, and certainly brook trout um, qualify as wildlife and they're very important because they're an iconic fish in Maine um, as the chickadee is the state bird the brook trout is the is the most popular fish uh, in Maine and it's among the most beautiful fish in the world it's also though a keystone species it's it requires very clean water cold water uh, um, and its habitat if it's protected um, the trout will be there and if the habitat's impaired uh, the trout won't be there, so they're they're kind of like the canary in the coal mine in the water system. And and Maine um, has a lot more brook trout habitat. I think we get spoiled a little bit by thinking about um, how easy it is to go out and find a brook trout stream in Maine. Yeah. That isn't the case in the rest of the Northeast. Yeah. So so the so the brook trout, the eastern brook trout, occupied 19 waters in 19 states, all the way down to Georgia, particularly along the Appalachian mountain range uh, in the headwaters and the colder waters uh, at higher altitudes all the way down to Georgia. Most of that habitat has, has uh, disappeared um, due to development and logging and farming and uh, industrial pollution and all that sort of thing. Um, they're, they're, they're relying where they do have trout, they're relying more on uh, hatchery raised mm -hmm. fish. Um, Maine is sort of the vestigial, they're not the last, I was going to say the the, the last stronghold for uh, native uh, brook trout, but it's uh, it's not that strong. It's a, a very vulnerable uh, vestigial remaining number of ponds that uh, that have native fish. But yes, indeed, we have 97% of the remaining native ponds and lakes uh, for native trout. There are about 300 native trout waters. Those are waters where there's never been any indication of stocking or record of stocking. And um, there are about 300 waters. We call them wild waters because uh, there may be some indication or actual documentation of spawning. It's, I mean, uh, 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 introducing hatchery fish at some point um, in the last 100 years. And um, so any water that hasn't had been stocked for 25 years or longer, it's a principal destination fishery for trout and that they're self-sustaining in their environment without any assistance. Um, they're called wild waters. So we have 300 of those and 300 native waters that have never been stocked out of 6,000 lakes and ponds, mm. most of which once had eastern brook trout, native brook trout. Now we, we do a lot of stocking in, in many of the ponds that are closer to population centers so that people have an opportunity to catch trout. But we're also concerned about um, even last week, I think it was last week, Kimball Pond, a native trout water, Mm -hmm. Someone yes. introduced smallmouth bass to it. Mm -hmm. That's the biggest threat to our brook trout are uh, competing non-native uh, fish, mm -hmm. non-native to the pond where the trout is. And you and, may not um, have, you, you may not have a, an exact figure, but um, why is this important economically? Um, why are brook trout? Um, well, um, 
you know, a- absent the sort of philosophical points about maintaining a species uh, in its, you know, original genetic form, um, the uh, the eastern brook trout is one of the most popular destination fisheries um, among recreational fishermen around the world. People come specifically to want to fish native and wild waters in Maine. Um, there are only a few in New Hampshire and Vermont and New York State. But they, it's, a, it's a wonderful fish to catch, and um, uh, people, people in other states that don't have them uh, think that we have a treasure, and we do. Mm. So you're one of the the uh, the threats to uh, brook trout um, is water quality and and uh, um, part of that equation um, has to do with the proper installation of culverts, the things that uh, well, I'm go glad under you brought roads. That up. Yeah, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because it's it's a really key uh, consideration now. We've got about uh, thirty thousand culverts, of which uh, ten thousand are functioning pretty well in terms of fish passage through them and aquatic passage. We have about 10,000 that are impaired sometime of the year, uh, not working properly, and about 10,000, roughly, that uh, are impaired most of the time. So, I, you know, think about the capillaries in your body. If, if 30% of them were impaired and the blood couldn't move through and the oxygen couldn't move through, you'd be a pretty thick puppy. But... Um, uh, so it, it, there's a real movement afoot among a number of organizations and agencies, uh, in, in, including um, uh, uh, the Extension Service and others, um, and Soil and Water Conservation Service, are looking uh, for assessing culverts, determining which are the culverts that are priority culverts. That is priority because the the passage to spawning areas an important. Um, uh, elements of their habitat has been blocked to uh, rank those priorities and uh, culverts and get to them and get them replaced in time. And uh, so there's work going on uh, all around the state, particularly in the headwaters of the Penobscot. Uh, it's a, it's, it can be a pretty expensive process to replace culverts. Um, towns are sort of reluctant to do it. Um, so besides uh, the expense, really besides the expense, Ted, um, it sounds like there's there's a whole education piece that these culverts there were is. installed because they people didn't want brook trout to pass through or other fish, but they didn't know better. Right, I think that's that's fair. The the, the purpose of culverts generally has been simply to uh, protect the road system and pro- and public and private property from flooding, so to move water under roads uh, uh, effectively. It's, essentially the, the, the goal, I think. And yes, and we've, we've, as we've come to understand the, the challenges with culverts, a number of organizations pulled together, and Maine Audubon has been um, uh, helping facilitate an educational process, um, a program called Stream Smart. And it's been a, such a great success. It started a year ago last March with six uh, workshops all the way up to Aroostook County for uh, people who are working in public works work or are scheduling that work or are making the decisions about financing that work at a municipal level, private property owners, large landowners. And um, uh, these workshops are half-day-long workshops and uh, explaining the importance of uh, the culvert and how it's placed and engineered and uh, that a natural bottom, essentially, can be created in the um, development of an arched culvert or uh, a box culvert or a bridge uh, that gives a, gives the stream a natural 
con- uh, condition for the fish to move and other wildlife to move up and downstream. And uh, boy, it's just been so exciting to see how people have responded to this. The people who actually, the practitioners, the folks in the backhoes, etc. Um, and you know, I think they they're getting it. And, and they're getting it. I think, Terry, yeah. I think they're getting it because they are also trout fishermen. <laughs> yeah, you know, it. It. I. I'm out on a limb here, but I, you know, having watched this for now a second year, we're doing these workshops now all over the place, and uh, uh, I think it adds value to the, to the very meaning of one's work, when you're doing something more than just replacing an old rusted out culvert. You're mm-hmm. actually reconnecting a natural system and you're going to improve the environment and your kids will be able to fish that stream etc i think you're right i think it's 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 more than the mechanics it's there's a there's a value in there and you're connected to that value when you do that restoration or rehabilitation work Mm. so if people wanted to know more about stream smart um i assume that they would find some information on your website they would indeed Great. So just um, um, use your browser to find Maine Audubon and, and uh, look for st- yep. Stream Smart. MaineAudubon.org. Okay. Yep. And, uh, and uh, yeah, and we have literature that we can send out, and uh, we can tell you where the different workshops are going to take place. Uh, we're actually thinking about moving into some middle schools to show the kids uh, about the you know morphology of streams and why it's important to think about what size culvert or bridge you use and how you put it in and all the rest of it. Great. And um, so good luck with that work, and, and uh, we'll look you. forward to your next next appearance here on Talk of the Towns. Thank you. I always love to be on the show. Okay. Th- thanks a lot, Good luck, Ted. everybody. Ted Kaufman of Maine Audubon talking about Stream Smart, a program that they and many others are working on to help people understand how to install culverts. Um, so in the studio with us are uh, Chris Brewer of the Penobscot County um, Soil and Water Conservation District Office and Megan Faciello of the Hancock County uh, Office. Um, we welcome your phone calls if you'd like. Uh, give us a call if you've got questions or comments or perhaps your experience with soil erosion or preventing soil erosion on your property um, as you garden or um, landscape um, or set up your camp, um, work on camp roads, or, or those kinds of things. Give us a call at one 866 That's one 866 here on Talk of the Towns. So... We've heard from Paul, we've heard from Ted. Um, how does this connect with your, some of your day-to-day work? We do a lot of work with uh, gravel roads, mm. uh, technical assistance with road commissioners, teaching them the right way to install culverts. Even mm-hmm. if it's a simple culvert that's not a trout stream, there's still a right way and a wrong way to put that culvert in. So not only is it keeping your road passable and in good shape, but it's also controlling erosion issues and protecting water resources. So we do a lot of work. Um, you just did a workshop on camp roads? We did. Well, this past weekend, um, Chris and I did a forming road associations workshop. And the idea behind that is if you have a stable road association, you can collect the funds that you need to be able to do the work that needs to get done to keep right. the road healthy and therefore your water resources healthy. So it's kind of that domino effect of starting at the beginning of getting that association 
association together so that the water can stay healthy and clean. So we've seen a lot more kind of development around lakes um, um, in Hancock County, but throughout Maine. And so these road associations are groups of camp owners who use those roads on a daily basis or a monthly basis. And and, and basically um, they're forming a, a nonprofit or an association? Yeah, they're forming, there's different types of associations. Um, there's the nonprofit 501c3, that's a bigger type of association. And then a few years ago, the state of Maine passed the statutory road law, which enables people to follow a certain set of guidelines. And if they follow and run their road association through that, then they can have a legal road association without the oh, time okay. and the necessary right. paperwork to form the larger 501c3. Mm-hmm. And so becoming an association, how does that then uh, make them eligible for funding or support or partnerships? Um, uh one of the ways that a road association helps them is actually giving liability protection to the people who are doing the road work. Um, people are finding out now that if you're getting paid to do work on your private road and you don't have an association together and something goes wrong, mm-hmm. the people doing the work and out the people that live out there are liable. So mm-hmm. having a road association actually gives you some protection from that. And the principal reason is to be able to collect the money from the um, association yes. members, mm-hmm. and that money then goes into the work that mains, maintains the road. Yeah, they estimate that every dollar spent in maintenance saves $15 of having to fix a larger problem later on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And are, are we seeing, um, uh, Paul mentioned, and it was great to, to, to realize that North America has a different kind of rainfall pattern, and I thought, you know, well, we're seeing much more severe weather events mm-hmm. um, that we believe is due to climate change. Paul's saying that that's a historic thing as well. Are you seeing that on camp roads? Are people complaining about the erosion? Yes, yes, we are. We're finding that over time, uh, many culverts that were installed on camp roads that probably worked, you know, 10 years ago are now too small. Mm. Um, So we're starting to recommend that um, camp road associations start looking at when they start to evaluate their roads, whether or not the culverts are big enough. Um, A lot of times we're finding a 12-inch culvert just isn't going to cut it anymore. We're recommending that they upgrade those to 18 to 24 inches just because there's so much more volume in our rain events now. Um, And, you know, if those culverts overtop it can take the whole road when those culverts blow out. We've Mm -hmm. seen some pretty interesting things throughout the years and and when a culvert goes, it's it's a big mess. Mm-hmm. And so. Not only is it bad for the road because now you have to spend the t- money to fix the road, put this, put more gravel in, but also the environment. All that material is now causing issues in in the woods, in the water bodies. It's mm-hmm. moving somewhere, covering mm-hmm. over fish spawning habitat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Plus, you can't get to your camp. No, that's true. If the road's gone, either you're stuck there or you can't get there. Right, and so only is that on not not fun, but also safety issues of not having good roads, um, emergency vehicle access, ambulances, fire trucks Mm -hmm. need to be able to get to these camps. Yeah, Mm -hmm. they they don't have to go down a private road if they can't get down it. Um, Sure. So that's, you know, it's important to make sure your road's maintained. I want to ask some more questions about municipalities in just a minute, but I'll list our phone number one more time, 1-866-625-9378 or locally at 469-0500. Give us a call if you've got questions or comments or your own experience about protecting water quality as you use your land. In the studio with us are Megan Faciolo and Chris Brewer, both of Hancock and Penobscot um, Soil and Water Conservation District. Uh, Chris, you mentioned working with municipalities. I suppose the whole 
terms of sizing of culverts is important for towns as well. Yes, it is. Um, as we were mentioning, you know, if it's not going to carry the water flow, then you have uh, issues with you know, stormwater. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. it's, it's important for everybody to consider culvert sizing. So that's a kind of an engineering question. It, yes, it is. And yep. then uh, yep. a budget question. Exactly. Yes. Um, you know, traditionally, the smaller culverts were installed not just in, on the camp roads, but in municipalities to save money. But, you know, a little bit of prevention, like we were saying, will save you money in the long run. So mm-hmm. if you're finding your culverts are undersized, upgrading them is going to save you money in the long run because maintenance is always cheaper than repair. Right. So. Right. And um, this um, notion of, of um, ignorance being the problem. In other words, people aren't doing this because they're willfully wanting to to, to degrade um, their water quality and stream. It's that they don't know. And that's where you folks come in. That's right. Exactly. Yep. Yeah, we've learned a lot of new tricks in the last few years about how to do road work differently um, that are smarter for the road to keep the road passable and in better condition, but also better for the environment. One eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. If you'd like to call us, we have a caller. If you'd like to um, identify yourself by your first name and the town you're calling from and then go ahead with your question or comment please yeah this is wally yes Harrington, and uh you're talking about culverts uh on on town roads and uh could you say something a little bit about ditches because mm. i find that the the local towns they i think they're operating from some kind of information that you have to have a ditch no matter you know, you got a road, you need a ditch. Mm-hmm. And the uh, way I understand it is the ditch is supposed to conduct the water, the runoff from the road to the culvert. So that in cases where, like, there's a hill, you really don't need a ditch at the top of the hill. But uh, it seems to me, the way I understand, like, the DOT or some, the DEP or somebody has some book out for municipalities to, uh, you know, and, and these are just the requirements. It's just like, well, you got to dig your ditches, you know. Uh-huh. So that just had a question about That's that. A great question. Thanks so much for your call. one eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. So what, what what's the purpose of a ditch? Um, the number one issue for road maintenance is getting the water off the road. Um, so ditches convey the water the quickest way off the roads. Um, we always encourage, and if this is a spec, actually, that the roads are, you know, um, crowned, to crowned or elevated to get the water off. Um, so Because if it sits there, then it begins to cause potholes exactly. or problems. That's right. And exactly. that doesn't just, gravel is not the only issue. Um, asphalt will pothole as mm-hmm. well if the water mm-hmm. sits there. So we want, you know, getting the water off as quickly as possible is really the key. But as he was mentioning, sometimes ditches aren't always necessary, but, you know, conveying the water is the most important way to get it away. Right. So, so sometimes it, it, it seems like um, if, if it's in a book, it says it must be done versus using the common sense of, oh, if it's at the crown of a hill, you probably aren't. <laughs> it isn't as important. And, and that goes back again to learning new tricks. Mm-hmm. Um, so what are some of the things that you've helped, you've learned and then helped? Um, landowners and, and others know. So in that case of the hill, I don't, you know, I don't know the specific right, right. situation he's talking about, but instead of doing ditches, a lot of times we do what's called turnouts where we're just taking little bits of water and pushing them off out into the woods and letting them flow out naturally and infiltrate down in. So instead of collecting all the water in big long ditches mm-hmm. and then at the end going okay we have all this water now what do we do with it it's trying to infiltrate little bits as you go uh-huh. down the hill so there's yeah. not a big problem 
at the bottom. I always say water is like teenagers, right? You get a few and everything's okay, but you get a whole bunch together and, you know, everything kind of breaks loose. Right. Um, and because so it's, as, as it's in the ditch, um, it, it still has to go somewhere. Right. 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 Yes. Right. Yep. right. So what are, are some of the other questions that you're getting either from um, uh, road associations or uh, urban property owners, rural properties? What, what kinds of questions are you dealing with on a daily basis? Um, lately, I've been getting a lot of questions from urban folks um, with the grubs. Oh. Um, So um, basically, if the damage is there now, um, basically all you can do is seed the grass and Mm -hmm. replace the grass. Um, There are some chemical alternatives if you're interested in that. Um, I would encourage you to contact Cooperative Extension, the pest management office, and get their information on what to do. Um, And there's also some organic methods that they can describe as well. Um, Now would be the time if you want to go chemical, if you want to go with something called beneficial nematodes, you want to put those on in August. Um, Mm -hmm. And that takes care of the the eggs. And Mm -hmm. so you shouldn't have a problem again. So no guarantees. How does does that relate to, to erosion, for instance? Um, I suppose if you don't have grass, you've got soil. That's right. And bare soil is um, something that can always erode. Okay. So we, um, having cover over your soil is the most important way to reduce soil erosion. Yep. Conservation seed mix. It will grow anywhere. It's good stuff. You don't need to fertilize it. It's great. Yep. So this yep. is, again, and that's a relatively new um, kind of innovation. Yep, in the last few years, and that's a question I get a lot lately, is someone says, well, I'm trying to go grass and grass just won't grow. Well, grass doesn't grow everywhere. You can't make it grow where it doesn't want to, but conservation seed mix will grow. Uh-huh. Exactly, because it's not just grass. Uh-huh. So we, We've got another phone call. Let's go ahead and, and take that phone call. Give us your first name, if you'd like, and the town you're calling from, please. Hi, good morning. Um, I'm calling from Orono, and I'd like to just, I know this is probably beyond purview of these of the people who have there today, but, you know, we've been experiencing blasting down by the hydro site for the last two years with tons and tons of dump trucks and a lot of movement right here on the confluence of the Stillwater and the Penobscot. And I'm absolutely certain there is no oversight. And I know that incremental things like pesticides on lawns and culverts and all that sort of thing and soil conservation and Paul's work are very important, but you know, it seems like nobody really cares once the project gets going alongside the river. And there's two of them right here. In so that's right, um, right in Orono, and that's um, installation of a new dam or replacement? Yeah, it's at the hydro site. Okay. They couldn't get the big dam through. Yep. They've been doing stuff on the, on the still water side. And well, let's, we'll, we'll, see if, we'll see if our guests have any, any thoughts about um, who um, a citizen might call to, to ask questions about um, something like that. <laughs> Thanks very much. Sure, thank you. Chris, any thoughts? It's Penobscot County, so it's your your district. Yes, it is. Um, Probably who I would recommend they get in touch with would start with Maine DEP, and they would tell you what kind of project might be going on. Um, Mm -hmm. They usually, because we are non-regulatory. Conservation districts are, we work with voluntary landowners who volunteer to work with us. Um, So the state is responsible for oversight um, and permitting and all that. So always check with... um, if it's, so if you, know, you see something that you're you're questioning and it looks like a, a big project, 
you can call DEP and say, exactly. um, yes. what's going on here? Is somebody paying attention to uh, water quality problems? Yes. Or even exactly. if it's a small problem, you, you'd want to start with your code enforcement officer of your town and call them and say, hey, I think some, something's not right. Mm-hmm. Something doesn't look right to me out here. I think someone might be doing the wrong thing. And it's their job to go out there and investigate that. They could say, oh, yes, I know that project. This is what's going on. Or they could say, thank you so much. I'll mm-hmm. go out and take a look. Because you have one code enforcement officer for a whole town, yes. and there's one DEP person for a huge, I mean, three or four counties. Yes. So people really need to be right. aware of what's going on around them and to help protect their natural resources. Right, we have, what, three three field people for basically the swath from Greenville down to MDI? Yeah. So, right. so the, the mention of code enforcement officers um, notes that you're working with lots of different partners. Yes. So um, talk about some of these other partnerships that you might um, want to uh, make people aware of. Um, in the urban areas, I work closely with the municipalities uh, near Bangor. So there's seven municipalities that are part of what's called a stormwater group. Um, so they're mandated by EPA to um, manage the stormwater that's flowing into the Penobscot River. So we we help them with educating the landowners on, you know, minimizing phosphorus use in, in their lawns and these kind of things to help help get that project process taken care of. Let's take another phone call. Go sure. ahead with your question or comment, please. Yes. Hey, how you doing? Good. Uh, this is Charlie from Surrey. I just got a question about using the lakefront. If you have lake access and you want to put something down there to right at the beginning so you're not stepping in the muck all the time, is there anything that's safe or... Um, so, so yeah, you're, you're talking about um, a, a site that's used um, both b- by a landowner and the public? No, just landowner. L- landowner, private. okay. And you're just p- So right at the lake access part where you're, so you're not stepping in the muck all the time. Yeah. Just yeah. So there's a little bit of a footing there. And uh, is there anything that's safe for the, for the lake? Not seeing the site. I mean, the first thing that comes to mind would be flat stones. So you're stepping on stones instead. Um, if you're if you're going to alter your shoreline anyway, that would be a first call to the, your code enforcement officer just to say, hey, these are the things I'm looking at doing. Can I do that? Um, and, and they should be able to give you some other suggestions on what might work specifically for your site, but also tell you what you can and can't do out there. Um, in some situations where it's a really hard access to get down into the water, you are allowed to put in some sort of small stairs to get down in there. But again, there's a permitting process that you go through for that. But it's likely if you, again, talk with that code enforcement officer, they can kind of lead you to the, the right kind of solution. Yes, mm-hmm. yep. Well, thanks so much for your call this morning. Well, let's let's begin to, to wrap up. Um, I I think that y- your partnerships um, with code enforcement offices with other agencies make you a logical um, kind of link in the chain, and people should know how to get in touch. So, um, Chris, um, your office in Penobscot County. Yes, um, we're located um, in Bangor um, on Broadway, um, and you can reach us. Um, my number is nine nine zero three six seven six. That will get you to the conservation district, and if you have um, farming questions, that will also connect with the Natural Resources Conservation Service. Um, We're also on the internet at penobscotswcd.org. Great. And Megan? My office is located in downtown Ellsworth. Uh, The phone number there is 667 
800-242-8663. I will say I am the army of one in my office. Um, and so if you call and you get the answer machine, please leave a message. I, I get back to people as quickly as possible, but I am in the field a lot. There are 427 lakes in Hancock County, 400, uh, 227 that are named and 200 that are unnamed. So I am out in the field quite a bit. Um, so again, leave a message. And you can also check out my website, which is www.ellsworthme.org backslash soil and water and sorry that's so long but they can find it through their their search engine as well sure so is. as we wrap up we've got just a, a minute what's your hope a very short hope for the future of this kind of work oh that's a big question yes it is education that people people uh, become educated about how to take care of their properties the best if everybody took care of their property the best that they could that would solve yep. tons of problems every person is important Great. and they contribute to the environment Thanks so much. We've come to that time when I want to remind you that this program was produced with support from Cooperative Extension and the Hancock County Extension Association. With offices in each county, Cooperative Extension is the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine. Our radio collaboration with WERU began in 1990 and continues with your support. And your support is so important to us. We uh, will start our, our spring uh, fun-a-thon uh, tomorrow. We hope that you're, you're ready to support us um, with your dollars and your volunteer time. So um, please participate. Join us from 10 to 11 on the second and fourth Friday mornings of each month for Talk of the Towns. Our theme music is a medley from Coronach on a Balnain House Highland music recording. Thanks again to our uh, guests. Um, in the studio, um, uh, Chris Brewer of the Penobscot County Soil and Water Conservation District, um, Megan Fasciolo of the Hancock County Office, Paul Birdsall um, of Horsepower Farm, and Ted Kaufman of Maine Audubon. Uh, thanks to those of you who listened and called in. Thanks to our underwriters. Uh, thanks to Matt Murphy for engineering our wonderful program here this morning. And stay tuned for On the Wing with Joel Raymond. This is Ron Beard, your host for Talk of the Towns, wishing you a good morning. Support for WERU comes from Waterfront Concerts, presenting Motley Crue and Hinder 
at Darling's Waterfront Pavilion in Bangor on Thursday, May 16th. Gates open at 5 p.m. Tickets online at waterfrontconcerts.com or 